we're in Luke. So if you'll open to the 19th chapter, we're going to start there today, Luke chapter 19. And we'll just see how far we get and where we get. That's where we stop. All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this uh, good rain that we've needed and we appreciate it. Thank you for the cool, crisp day and the reminder of uh, your creative, your creativity and the fact that uh, the changing of the seasons are so extraordinary and amazing and special. And you are an amazing God and we adore you and we worship you and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, the gift forgiveness of our sins, the gift of eternal life. We are a very, very grateful and very, very thankful people. So Father, it's been a joy to uh, make our journey through uh, the study of the scripture in tune-up, and we've had the privilege and joy of of studying uh, a number of books in the Bible and some other topics that we've covered from time to time, and it has been exciting and thrilling to study together. And so as we uh, today plunge into Luke 19 and hopefully a little beyond that, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and may our time together be fruitful Bless each person on the screen, encourage them, bless them and their families. And uh, Father, bless our time together. We love you and adore you. We thank you for your precious word and pray that you'll speak to us from its words today. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Um, We're at Luke 19, and whenever I start to read Luke 19, the very first thing that always comes to my mind is a song. Zacchaeus was, uh, what, what, what's the, what are the words to that? Zacchaeus was a wee, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the savior came that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house today. Now that's a paraphrase of the song, but it's something like that. So I always think of that, um, we little man Zacchaeus, and they're still singing that in Sunday school. That didn't go away with uh, some of us who are perhaps a little older than average. That song's still out there and being sung. Well, let's look at the first ten verses of chapter nineteen, and we'll we'll see what the scripture says about Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will repay four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Salvation today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, great. I just love the story of of Zacchaeus. Jesus was entering Jericho, and ostensibly, outwardly, openly, it would appear from the scripture that his intent was not to stay there. It was to pass through. Now, Jesus in his heart knew what he was going to do, so don't think that he was surprised by any of this. But it appeared that he was passing through, and where was he going? We know he was going to Jerusalem. The scripture has already stated that in prior chapters. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what will happen there? He will be arrested, abused, a mockery of a trial. He'll be crucified. He will die. He will be buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he will rise from the grave. So that's why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Now he's on his way and he passes through Jericho. 
Now, he has quite a journey before him, not that far in mileage, but it's going to be uphill all the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho uh, is well below sea level. Jerusalem is 27, 2800 feet above sea level. And it's a short journey between the two cities and it's uphill all the way until Jesus gets to the Mount of Olives and then it's downhill. So he has quite the journey before him in going to Jerusalem from Jericho. And a man was there and he's identified to us as one named Zacchaeus. That tells us immediately he was not just any tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. Now, we don't know a whole lot more beyond that, but perhaps that means he was the chief tax collector for Jericho. And so he's a significant person in the city of of Jericho. And it also says he was wealthy. So we see immediately two problems. Uh, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this before, but just a brief refresher. Uh, Zacchaeus was Jewish, but sold out to the Romans to serve as a tax collector. And the tax collectors of the day would always have a Roman soldier or soldiers with them to protect them. And if you are, for instance, the tax, the person to be taxed, the citizen to be taxed, you would go to where Zacchaeus had his booth and uh, you would inquire as to your tax and you would be told the amount that you owed sometimes based on um, something that you had manufactured or perhaps something that you had caught like fish, uh, perhaps on the knowledge of who you were and on your income, but whatever the case may be, you would go to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus would tell you what you owed to Rome. And Zacchaeus made his money by padding what you owe to Rome. For instance, if you owed $1,000 to Rome, he could say you owe $1,200 to Rome and he would keep the 200 or he could really extort you and say you owe 2000 and 1000 would go to Rome and 1000 would go to him. So it's no wonder that the tax collectors were despised and hated. They were seen as traitors, as tools of Rome, and the fact that he was Jewish, extorting taxes from his own people, would have made Zacchaeus uh, somewhere in single digits on the popularity poll. We hear a lot about polls these days and who's going to win this and who's going to win that. Well, there would have been no chance at all that Zacchaeus could have been elected to anything because his popularity would have been as close to zero as as it gets. Maybe if he was married, his wife might have been for him because she would be the recipient of the largesse that he brought in. But beyond that, I doubt anybody would have favored Zacchaeus. Now, he was also rich. The two go hand in hand, being a tax collector and being rich. And if you'll recall from last week when we were in chapter 18, uh, verse 24 and 25, uh, Jesus was talking about the wealthy and the kingdom of God. And Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which you and I know would be impossible, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So having said that in chapter 18, then we meet Zacchaeus and he's rich. So he, he, we have two problems. We have a, a sinner of the worst kind. And we have a rich man, 
And because of those two things, uh, he is far from the kingdom of God, or so it appears. Well, we come to the third verse, and we find that this Zacchaeus has a powerful desire to see Jesus. No doubt he had heard about Jesus. Perhaps he had heard of the words of Jesus' encounters with other tax collectors, maybe like Levi. And so it may be that Zacchaeus felt that Jesus would be favorably disposed toward him or at least be civil to him. And so Zacchaeus was very interested in seeing Jesus. In fact, very interested, we might say, instead of interested, very determined to see Jesus. He wants to know, who who is he? I mean, who, who is he really? Now, uh, Zacchaeus had a, a real problem in that just being with this crowd that was following Jesus would have been unhealthy for Zacchaeus. Uh, he could have been uh, at the least jostled by the crowd. Perhaps even more severely, he could have been pushed down by the crowd or maybe even worse. Uh, at this moment, he's vulnerable. His Roman guard um, would have had a difficult time protecting him. And, and so Zacchaeus is very vulnerable, yet at the same time, not unaware of the danger, yet determined to find out more about Jesus and determined to see him. So determined was he that he climbed a sycamore fig tree. Now, we, we're accustomed to seeing children climb trees. We don't often see a grown adult climbing a tree unless he's having to do tree work. And so seeing an adult man, whether he's short or whether he's tall, is kind of an unusual thing. So he climbs the tree, and he does so because he wants to see Jesus. And he knows he's coming, he knows he's coming down the road, and he feels like his only chance to get a good view is from the sycamore fig tree. Now, we see absolutely zero evidence that Zacchaeus expected Jesus to say anything to him. As Jesus comes down the road, we are about to see what could be called a divine encounter. Uh, Jesus knew that Zacchaeus was there. He had known this from eternity past. And, and so Jesus has a plan for Zacchaeus's life. And so he stops along the road, looks up, spots Zacchaeus in the tree, and then invites Zacchaeus to come down out of the tree. And on top of that says, I need to go to your house. Have you ever invited yourself to someone's home? Especially with a view toward a meal and perhaps, perhaps spending the night. We don't know for sure, but perhaps that's what happened. Well, Jesus invites himself, said, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. Well, this is thrilling to Zacchaeus. Now he's for certain going to get to know Jesus on a personal level. He had not anticipated that kind of opportunity. He was in the tree because he would have been satisfied with just seeing Jesus. But now he's going to get to visit with him personally. So there is a glad response. There's a glad response and a mad response. The glad response is on the part of Zacchaeus. Verse 6 says he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The mad response comes from the people. And in verse 7 it says all the people saw this and they began to mutter, grumble. You know how it goes. Not because you've ever done it, but you've heard others do it. He has gone to be guest of a sinner. Oh, my goodness. How in the world could somebody as prominent as Jesus ever invite himself to the home of this tax collector, this sinner, this rich man who has no chance at all of getting into the kingdom of God? What in the world is this all about? And so they they mutter. Now, let me... Just remind you that you should expect that not everybody is going to be happy 
when you are faithful to Jesus. They just won't be. Not everyone is going to be thrilled that you are a Christ follower. And so there were a lot of people who did not like it that Zacchaeus and Jesus were going to have a get-together at Zacchaeus's house. But what is the result of that visit? How we wish we could know more of the details. But we get all we need to get out of this, in this story. And at some point in the evening, perhaps at the dinner table, perhaps in whatever served for Zacchaeus's living room, he stands up and he has something to say. And what he says is evidence that in his house there has been a, a change of heart. There has been, a, there's been repentance. There's been a turning around and going in the opposite direction, which is the meaning of the word repentance. Turn around and go the other way. If you look back again at chapter 18, verse 27, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And most of the people in the crowd that day would have said, it is impossible for Zacchaeus to know God. It is impossible for Zacchaeus to come to God. It is absolutely impossible, yet that is exactly what happens. The proof of Zacchaeus's repentance comes in his own words and, and what he says I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's evidence of the change of heart of a man called Zacchaeus. And he has now become a true, a true son of Abraham that day in his house. So, This section concludes with the verse that if you were around in the days when I preached through Luke, you'll remember that the first Sunday we identified the key verse to the Gospel of Luke, and we repeated it almost every Sunday during that series. Verse 10 is the key verse to Luke, the main point, the main idea for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And aren't you glad? Yeah, glad that that's the key verse, but glad because that is why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost, of which you and I were a part at one time. He seeks us, and he saves us, and we're a grateful people. So that's the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the rich man, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And aren't we glad for that divine encounter? Now, as a way of wrapping up that first story of the day, understand that what happened to Zacchaeus is exactly what happens to you when you give your heart and life to Jesus. You're transformed you're changed from the inside out. And it comes by faith in Christ and Christ alone. It comes as we repent of our sins and give our hearts and our lives to Jesus. So what happened to Zacchaeus has happened to us who know Jesus. Maybe not as dramatically. Maybe you weren't hated among people like Zacchaeus was. Maybe you didn't meet Jesus in a tree. But basically, the way in which Zacchaeus came into a personal encounter with Jesus is the same way you and I do. And so we love the story of Zacchaeus. All right, let's look at verse 11. Serve the king faithfully. Now, uh, I want to read through verse 27. That's quite a few verses, but I think the only way it makes sense is to get it all out there. So let's look at verse 11 of chapter 19. While they were listening to this, words of Zacchaeus and Jesus, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
So that kind of lets us in on what people were thinking around Jesus. Understand, Jesus has already said several times, perhaps many times, because not everything he said is recorded in Scripture, but we know that several times he had said clearly, I'm going to Jerusalem. There I will be arrested, tried, crucified, and there I will rise from the grave. But it would appear that those words are lost on most of those who are following him. But what they are hearing and what they are seeing and what thrills them are the changes in the life of someone like Zacchaeus, the miracles of raising people from the dead and healing the sick and calming nature. All of those things were multiplying the loaves and the fish, giving food to people were hungry. All those miracles that Jesus performed, coupled with his consistent talk about the coming of the kingdom of God over and over and over again, and what most folks who are following Jesus are really thinking, not a cross, not a tomb, not torture, not arrest in a trial. What they're thinking of is Revolution. We are about to see Jesus overthrow the Romans and reestablish the throne, the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And we're on our way and we're with you all the way, Jesus. Right. You know, we're with you all the way, Jesus. That's what they thought. So, uh, in, in, in this text, it says in verse 11, the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And when the kingdom of God, they're not thinking a spiritual kingdom. They're thinking a physical, a physical kingdom. They hated the Romans. They couldn't wait for Messiah to come and run the Romans out. And they saw Jesus and rightly so many identified him as Messiah, but incorrectly they identified that to mean a physical kingdom instead of a spiritual kingdom. Verse 12, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Now, you may have a note in your Bible. Mine does. A mina was worth about three months salary or three months wages. One mina. So, think back, um, many of you are retired, think back to your highest income level. Perhaps it was your last year to work, but what was your, your highest income level? Well, let's play and pretend for a moment that your best year was $50,000 a year. That was your salary, $50,000 a year. I picked that figure because it's easy to work with. <laughs> $50,000. Well, three months wages for a mina and uh, 10 minas. Well, when you do the math, it comes out to two and a half years. And what does that mean? $125,000 for the $50,000 salaried person. You get $125,000. It's not bad. Um, if anybody wants to physically demonstrate that today, just let me know. I'll be glad to be the recipient of that. We'll see where it goes from there. But um, so in other words, he's entrusting these servants with a substantial sum of money. This is not a, a little thing. This is big, big. So he says to them, put the money to work until I come back. Now you're getting, are you getting a picture here as things are beginning to gel this, uh, this king is going away, but he's going to come back. Does that cause you to think of anything? Of course. Jesus is going away, but he's going to come back. And so he says, until I come back, in verse 14, but his subjects, not his servants, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, after him. doesn't mean they chased after him. It means they came in after he was gone. 
sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. We're going to see that lived out in Jerusalem. He was made king, however, and returned home. So he went away, came back. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, get the picture here. Well, I'll wait till we finish reading it. We're going to identify who's the king, who are the servants, who are the countrymen. We'll get get to all that in a minute. So he wants to find out what they've done. Here comes the first servant. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Woohoo! All right. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. Wow. The second came and said, sir, your mind has earned five more. That's pretty good. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. So there is um, faithfulness with what had been entrusted to them uh, and, and then a generous reward for what they had done. So let this picture kind of shape up in your mind. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. He gave it back. I've kept it and laid, and kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Now, if you had to stop right there reading, you'd know that's not good. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you do not sow. That's not a very good picture. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you take put the money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have collected it with interest at least get something out of this? Then he said to those standing by, take his mind away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Why? Because of his unfaithfulness. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Ooh, mercy. Okay. Now let's, let's get our arms around this, this, this parable. So in, in verse 11, it tells us they were listening. The disciples were listening. The people were listening to what happened in Zacchaeus' house. And here are two things that arise from that. The first is they forgot that they were on their way to Jerusalem, and they forgot that Jesus said, here's why we're going to Jerusalem. Okay? They're distracted by, they allow themselves to be distracted by the Zacchaeus event, so they've forgotten that we're on our way to Jerusalem, and they're Jesus is going to die because he said he was. And the second thing is all this talk of salvation coming to Zacchaeus' house on that day had them thinking the kingdom of God is going to appear now. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that's it. The kingdom of God is going to appear. We'll usher him to the throne. We'll run the Romans out of, of, of Israel. They're gone, and we will celebrate our freedom. That's what they were thinking. What they want to do is they want to skip the cross and go straight to the kingdom. The parable is an attempt to clarify that and and to fix these two mistakes. Number one, forgetting where we're going and why. And and secondly, the thinking that the kingdom of God is going to appear right now in physical form. So who are the people in, in this story? Well, there's the nobleman himself who goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He represents Jesus. He's going to Jerusalem where he will be killed. He'll rise in three days and ascend to heaven. And that's the far country. And there he will receive his kingdom and he will return. So he's going away for a time, but he will return. There's the servants. The servants are Jesus' followers who receive the minas, the coinage, and they engage 
least most of them, we hope, engaged in business until the nobleman returns, and the story follows up with three of them. We don't know anything about the outcome for the other seven, but for three of them, we find out what happens. And then the citizens of verse 14 who don't like the king, those are the sinners who reject Jesus. That's the representation of the parable. So as we look at the parable, we see a problem. We see the problem presented to us in verses 15 to 24. The nobleman returns, a picture of Christ's return, calls his servants to give an account for what they've done. And understand all of us are going to give an account of what we do in this life. All of us will give an account. And there will be rewards based on what we do or what we don't do. And so that that's the picture that we get here as we see the report of three of the followers of the Lord. And so one greatly increases the number of minus and is rewarded with 10 cities. Another does really well, not quite as good as the first guy, but really well. He's going to be rewarded five cities. But then there's our third servant, third Christ follower, who doesn't do anything except hide what he's been given. Kind of like hiding the talents that God has given you. Um, A picture that we get here that we need to remember is that a life of serving Christ is an eternally rewarded life. Now, I know you're anticipating eternity. I'm not saying that to say that you're ready to, to sign up today and move on out. Most of us want to remain here a while longer because of our our families, our church, our friends, feeling like God still has something for us to do. However, spiritually speaking, I believe most of us are prepared and we know where we're going. And so if it's today, we're ready. If it's tomorrow, we're ready. If it's 35 years from now, we're ready. We know where we're going. But the question of the parable is, what are you doing with what the Lord has entrusted to you? And that can be certainly money and stuff and things, but it can also be talents, giftedness. What are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? One of the great heartbreaks of ministry, and believe me, the joy far outweighs the heartache. But but there are heartaches, and one of the heartaches of ministry is seeing extraordinarily gifted men and women who are Christ followers, who squander their extraordinary giftedness and don't do what they could have done to serve the kingdom of God. And it's heartbreaking. You think about the incredible potential in a person who is so gifted what he or she could do for the kingdom of God and and bringing people to Christ and ministering to the needs of people or whatever that may be. It is a heartbreak to see those who just squander what, what God has given. Does it, does it mean they're lost? Does it mean they're going to hell? Does it mean that they lose their salvation? But it is a sadness that so many just don't, do anything with what Christ has entrusted to them. And so that's illustrated here in the person that simply takes what the king has given him and just wraps it up in a napkin and hides it. Uh, I remember the story, this little light of mine, and part of it says, hide it under a bushel. And what's the response of the song? No, we're not to hide the light under a bushel. We're to let it shine. And so the story here certainly points out the importance of our doing what we're supposed to do with what Christ has entrusted to us and knowing that there is reward for our faithfulness. Now, um, I've heard Christians say, oh, I, I, I don't serve for reward. I just serve because it's the right thing to do. Can you see me? Hogwash. 
That's what I say to that hogwash. Oh, yeah, I serve because it's the right thing to do, but I also serve because I know I want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with desiring the rewards of heaven. If it, if it was wrong, the scripture would point it out and say it's wrong. It doesn't say that. So it is right to desire the rewards of eternity. And if you serve the Lord faithfully with what he's entrusted to you, you will experience a reward. How sad to see the servant who makes excuses. Well, Lord, you're kind of tough. Um, I thought the best thing for me to do is just hide what you had given me. Well, no, no, no. A thousand times, no, don't do that. So with whatever time we have left, for some of us here, that is going to be a long time. Others of us may not be a whole long time. But whatever it is, faithfully, Serve and use what God has entrusted to you at this point in your life. Physical limitations may cause that at this point to be simply, uh, I, I can't move around much, but I can pray. I can't move much, but I can, I can use my telephone and I can call people and encourage them. And so there, for all of us here today, there's something that we can do regardless of our status in life. And so do what God has enabled you to do with what he's entrusted to you. So God expects us to use what he gives us and no excuses will do. We're responsible. And so this one servant loses his reward and we must understand we live for his glory, the glory of God and and those rewards we eagerly anticipate. God rewards faithfulness. Um, But I, I I can't imagine how it will how it will be for those who are not rewarded yet followed Christ. Uh, there, there's no punishment in heaven for the saved, but I, I just wonder if there's going to be this twinge of wow, I had so much and I didn't do anything with it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to leave that to God. But what we do know for sure is He will reward you if you faithfully serve him with what's been entrusted to you. Now, there's a pretty graphic image here at the conclusion of the story that helps us to understand the consequences of lostness because the the citizens, uh, the, the, the people who hated the king are not believers, though that's the lost people. And he says, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king, bring them here and kill them. Whoa, yes. It is just a further illustration of the reality of the consequences of lostness and the rebellion in our hearts that causes us to reject Christ will meet with punishment. And so it's a sobering thing to think about. It serves two motives. One motive is if you are in that camp, it reminds you of what the outcome is going to be. Turn, repent, give your life to Christ now. And it also, for those of us who do know Jesus, is a motivator to share the gospel at every opportunity because we know people or will encounter people who are lost and headed toward eternal punishment. And we don't want that to happen. Our compassionate heart given to us by Jesus doesn't want that to happen. Okay, let's go then to the, um, let's go then to the triumphal entry. I always, I love the story of the triumphal entry. So that's what happens in verse 45. Um, um, no, wait a minute. Where, do, where am I? Yeah, verse 28. I was jumping ahead. So look at verse 28. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and we have the triumphal entry. So let me read fast so we can at least get chapter 19 done. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Remember, wherever you are, you go up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, probably would have been Bethany, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and some of you have stood in that exact location. In fact, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, I promise you, you have stood in that exact location. You're high on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the city of Jerusalem, and you follow the road that leads to the city of Jerusalem. And that is where Jesus made his way down from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. You can see the whole thing. It's a magnificent view. And in those days with the temple there, believe me, it would have blown you away to see it. So the crowd of disciples begin joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He's going down the hill and he begins to weep over the lostness of Jerusalem and those who reject him. And he said if, if, to Jerusalem, he speaks, if you had even known, if even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the day will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And that's going to happen in the lifetime of many of those who are with Jesus at this moment. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. All right, let's quickly look at that. Jesus and his disciples have moved on to Jerusalem. They're on the hill overlooking the city, the Mount of Olives, beautiful view. And so they get ready to enter on a humble colt of a donkey, not on a conquering horse, but on the humble colt of a donkey in perfect fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before this event, had written, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Exactly as scripture had predicted, and so it is fulfilled, and in it we see the humility of Jesus as he enters. Here is the king, here is the Messiah. And so his disciples begin to praise him, and that also was a fulfillment of prophecy. They lay their cloaks, uh, some on the back of the donkey, others they lay on the ground, the palm, the palm branches, and, and and Jesus is it takes us back if you remember it takes us back to the to the words that the angel said upon the birth of Jesus peace on earth goodwill to men so here it is here it's being fulfilled the peace of god comes through jesus well the pharisees are offended they want jesus to rebuke his disciples and jesus says no i'm not going to do that because if they don't say something then the rocks are going to cry out. Have you ever been in a situation? Have you ever been in church on a Sunday? Not, not necessarily hearing me, but hearing something, a great music, great, uh, a great sermon, whatever it may have been. And there's something in you that just says, somebody needs to say something. And maybe you have said, amen, or something like that. Or when a song was over, you said, amen, choir, way to sing. And you couldn't help yourself. You had to say something. Jesus is saying, if my disciples don't speak, then the rocks are going to speak. And they're going to cry out. And so I'll just, I won't take time to read these these verses. But if you'll look later at Isaiah 55, 12, you'll read about the, the mountains skipping and singing. If you'll go to Psalm 19, 1. You'll read about the skies proclaiming his handiwork. If you go to Psalm 150, 
verse 6. I'll just read that one for you. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do not stop praising Jesus. So Jesus sees the city, its people. He thinks of its people. He weeps. The tears of Christ. He knows what awaits him. He knows what awaits the city of Jerusalem and its people. He knows that he will be largely rejected by his people. God is in their midst and they reject him. I mean, here he is, God in the flesh, the Messiah, and they reject him. Now, verses 43 to 48 in 70 AD will be literally fulfilled. Literally fulfilled in the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, as the Romans siege, and, and it was awful. Uh, just read some, get some reliable history and, and read about what happened. It is heartbreaking and it is awful. Uh, we learn a lot from the Romans, uh, but one thing we know about them, when they were intent on being vengeful, they would do everything you could ever imagine to the people that they were attacking. And that's what they did. It was awful what they did to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And if you've been there, you remember the massive stones in the wall and how the Romans toppled those massive stones, some of them measuring the length of our gymnasium and the height of two people and the depth of two people, massive stones, and they toppled those stones. They had a way of doing that explosively. They toppled those stones. And when archaeologists found those stones, and you can see them today, they've dug it. You can go today and see some of those very stones. It is breathtaking. And not one stone was left upon another, just exactly as Jesus said it would be, as the scripture said it would be. Well, um, yeah, I think we can finish chapter 19. We've only got a few more verses. So Jesus goes on into Jerusalem, and we know this story well. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, so where does he go? Comes into Jerusalem, um, no doubt entering through the eastern gate, because that was the gate that met the road coming down from the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Now, a couple of the other gospels give an expansive view of this incident, but he drives out the robbers. Um, now there was originally a purpose for the money changers being outside the temple because people would come from other countries. Jewish people would come to worship from other countries and the temple tax could only be paid in, in shekels. So they would have to exchange wherever they came from to shekels. And also it was a place where you could purchase uh, doves or even lambs that theoretically were perfect and without blemish. I say theoretically. And so if you were coming so far that it would have been difficult to bring a lamb all the way, then you didn't have to worry about it. You could buy one in Jerusalem. So their original intent was, was a good one. But what had happened is over time, it became a place of extortion. And what is worse than that, the money changers had moved their location into the court of the Gentiles. That's where it was. The place where Gentiles were supposed to come and be able to inquire as to the reality of the one true and living God. It's kind of like we would have outside our church, we might call it witness corner. And so we have folks waiting there with Bibles and with, uh, and with tracks ready to witness. And so someone could come in and say, what's this all about? Tell me about this Jesus. And, and so you're there ready. That's what, that was what the court of the Gentiles, they could come inquire. And if they believed, 
then they could worship God from the court of the Gentiles. Well, no Gentile is going to go in there now because of the sheep and the smell of animals and the extortion. And it angers Jesus to see what is happening in the court of the Gentiles. And so, as you know, the scripture says he ran them out. Now that makes Pharisees really mad. And I wish we had time to go into that. But it does say in verse 47 and 48, he spoke while he was now that he was there. He spoke each day in the temple. The people listen and, and the rulers are ready to kill him, but they've got to wait for the right moment. And you and I know that right moment is going to come on Thursday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's what happens in in, in chapter 19. So it is there that we must stop and um, perhaps someone else can pick up with chapter 20 at some point, but uh, that's where we end up today. Well, what a pleasure. Um, nothing gives me greater memories and greater uh, joy than the thoughts of Tuna having lunch with you and laughing with you and sharing stories with you and then getting up and having uh, 30 minutes or 35 minutes to study the Bible. Uh, Vicki put a, a note on the screen that we started tune up in 2006. So for 14 years, we've been studying the word together and uh, that, that is awesome. We have 89 folks today. That's awesome. Considering COVID and Zoom and all that, I'm thankful that Zoom's available to us, allowed us to continue. So uh, what a joy for me, and I trust that you've been blessed uh, by the study of God's Word. So I love you all. I'll uh, hang around for a few minutes if you have anything you want to say. And uh, certainly if you need to go, I understand we've and I've, I've seen most of who's here and love you, appreciate you. And just remember, I'm not leaving town. So I'm not going to be your pastor anymore, but I'm not leaving town. So I'm going to see you. We'll see each other uh, from time to time. And then on the day that we get to come back to the church, then we'll be sitting with you in the pew. So we'll look forward to that. Father, thank you for tune up. Thank you for your precious word. Bless these good and godly people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.